here and uh, appreciate the, uh, the music here this morning. The woman who wrote that song, her name was Melody Green. Her uh, husband's name was Keith Green. And Keith Green was saved out of the drug culture in the 70s and saved into the Jesus movement uh, in the 70s. Maybe some of you were also saved during that period. Uh, he was on fire for the Lord Jesus, and uh, he uh, was a talented musician himself, played the piano and sang, and uh, one of the songs he wrote, he was so disgusted with Christians who said they were born-again believers, but uh, lived in such apathy, he wrote, um, <clears throat> Jesus rose from the dead and you can't even get out of bed, is what he wrote, and uh, he had some powerful, powerful lyrics here. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, please. Matthew chapter 28. And it's on page 852 in your pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning. 852. Matthew chapter 28. We live in an unprecedented era of information. Uh, There is access to information that has never been available to us as there is today. Um... The difference between uh, my generation and younger and some of the generations above me is that the generations above me knew uh, information. And our generation doesn't know as much information, but we know where to find it. (laughs) Google has changed everything, and with the uh, uh, explosion of the Internet, you can access anything and everything uh, for good or for bad in this era. And with that comes truth, and with that comes falsehood. And what has come into our culture recently is a is a is a is a is a, is a uh, moniker that has been referred to as fake news. Fake news. I want to talk to you this morning about the truth and fake news. Fake news and news that has been disseminated by people who want to divert from the truth is not anything new. Our culture now has a, a uh, renewed suspicion, it seems, of, of media and suspicion of reports uh, from, from all sides of the aisle. And there is a search for truth. And Matthew chapter 28 addresses the truth of the resurrection versus fake news. That's what I want to look at this morning. The philosopher and broadcaster, uh, Professor C.E.M. Jode, was once asked who, of all past figures in history, he would have liked to have met, and what question he most would have liked to have asked. And he said, the person I would most like to have met was Jesus Christ, and the most important question in the world is the question I want to ask him, did you or did you not rise from the dead? And that is the issue in Matthew 28 that is laid out in the text here for Matthew writing to the believers that he is writing to some 30, 40 years after Jesus has been resurrected. This is the issue between the church that Matthew, the apostle, was a part of and the synagogue down the street. And you can almost hear the debate and the overtones of this chapter It was a critical issue. It was the essential issue that separated believers from non-believers in the first century A.D. and still today. Because the issue is this. Dead men don't rise. Dead men don't rise. A dead person does not walk out of a coffin. Does not walk out of the grave. And if we are asked to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, this must be something that is quite unparalleled 
in the history of the world. You see, the resurrection stories of Jesus concern a man that they all knew. This is a man that they would have gone to the well and seen him going to the well. This is a man they would have eaten with. This is a man they would have seen teaching and traveling through their villages. This is a man they would have uh, perhaps had uh, come and, pre- and, and, and repair things in their home as he was uh, trained as a carpenter, probably more of a stonemason in that part of the world. This is a man who just a day before had been uh, seen to be alive and then was crucified on the cross and then three days later was not in the place where they laid him. This is a man who after his resurrection for the next six weeks before he ascends and leaves the infant church uh, would give him instructions. And so this is an unparalleled event in the history of the world. Now, never anything before it and not anything since. And Matthew lays two reports, the true and the false, side by side. And he invites you, the reader and the audience today, to consider and choose. And first of all, this morning in our text, I want to jump up to Matthew chapter 27 and verse 57. It says, when the even even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. Now notice, it describes the body, okay? Uh, uh, It was was the body of Jesus. He has died on the cross. His heart sack, the pericardium, has been pierced by the tip of a spear. No one ever survives from that. Uh, They they go to break his legs to uh, hasten up the suffocating death on the cross. And the Roman soldiers who are trained executioners, experts in killing people, say, he's already dead. And Pilate is amazed that he's already dead. And verse 59 says, And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher, and departed. Of these stones that were rolled in front of the door were several tons. It would take a few, uh, several men actually, to push the, the stone up. There was a channel that was grooved out, and they would push the stone up to close the opening uh, from, uh, from those who may steal uh, minor trinkets uh, that would be in the, in the grave, perhaps the burial clothes, the linens, or perhaps the spices, but most of all to keep out the animals. And then they would have a wooden wedge that would that would um, uh, that the stone would be resting uh, against here as it as it was in the channel there uh, and leaning against. <clears throat> Verse sixty one says, and there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. Now the next day, that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that what that what that excuse me that that deceiver said while he was yet alive after three days all rise again. So it's well understood that Jesus already predicted he would he would be resurrected. Command therefore that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people he has risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. So they already understood the stakes that were here. And they made special governmental precautions. 
They had covered every single uh, back door, back alley, every single loophole here to make sure that Jesus' disciples could not break in and seal the body of Jesus and declare to the world, see, he said he was risen. Pilate said to them, you have a watch, go your way and make it as sure as you can. That's almost the most uh, humorous verse uh, phrase there in the Bible. There in verse 66 says, So they went and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. So they planted around this sepulchre that he sealed probably with a wax seal, with a governor, Roman government signature on that seal saying, Do not touch this, this, uh, this grave. They set trained Roman soldiers around this tomb to guard it. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. This is the Mary who is the mother of James and John. And behold, there is a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulchre with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large monies unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. Now, of course, that was the very thing that they didn't want to happen and made uh, preparations for in chapter 27 and verse 64. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day, Matthew says. First of all, I'd like you to notice this morning uh, that there was a dilemma. There was a dilemma. These two Marys, they go to the sepulcher at dawn. The first day of the week. The beginning of something very new. Something very symbolic. That a new age was dawning And I want you to understand very clearly, with the way the Gospel writers lay this out, nobody sees the resurrection. Not one of them see the resurrection. Uh, We don't know when the resurrection occurred. We're just told here in Matthew 28, the first day of the week, they looked and there was an earthquake. And the angel of the Lord rolls away the stone. But nobody saw the resurrection. Here was a corpse in the tomb, wrapped in clothes, uh, uh, declared dead by the Roman authorities, the expert executioners. And John tells us that his burial clothes are rolled nice and neatly and the the napkin that covered the face was laid in another spot. But there's no body there. There's no body there. And God here has acted and he has revealed himself in the resurrection of Jesus and the angel opens the sealed tomb. 
Not to let Jesus out, because Jesus is already gone, but to let the world see inside the tomb that there is no body in the tomb. That the, He is no longer inside. And so there is a great dilemma in this text, is there not? Here should have laid the body of one who had had all kinds of preparations from the highest authorities, the governor, Pontius Pilate, who represented the Roman government, who had put the, uh, the, the trained Roman uh, guards in, 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 uh, in front of that tomb, who had sealed that tomb, who had made all the preparations, and now when the, when the stone is rolled away by these two angelic warriors, it's empty and they can hear their echo. In the tomb. What a dilemma. Now what do you do? There is no doubt the tomb is empty. There is no doubt the tomb is empty. And the men, the guards, uh, verse 4 says, for, for fear of the angel, the keepers, the guards, did shake and became as dead men. And that's kind of the last you hear about them till the end here in verse 11 through 15. And then the focus turns to the women. Women, who were the first of the tomb. The angel answered and said of the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. The women, when they see that the body of the Lord, that they were not prepared to see, they, they, they were they were not prepared to see an empty tomb. They were anticipating a body in the tomb. None of Jesus' disciples, it seemed, were really believed that there would not be a body in there. And it kind of adds to the to the credibility of the story. Even Jesus' own followers doubted the resurrection. And so they receive words of comfort. Do not be afraid. They receive words of understanding. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. They receive words of assurance. Come and see the place where he lay. And they receive words of command. Go quickly and tell his disciples. And they receive words of encouragement. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. And all of this is brought to us through female witnesses. And that is astounding if you understand the culture of that day. Women counted for little both in Jewish and in Greek and Roman circles in their days. Sometimes they would even be viewed as property. They could even, in some circumstances, be offered for sale. And they could not bear witness in a court of law. And yet the irony here is Matthew upholds them as witnesses. Now, if you were trying to make up a story like this, you would not have women uh, in the culture in that day be the ones who would be the witnesses uh, of the resurrection. That would stand up in a court of law. But that, again, is the irony of the story. It adds the credibility to it. Because uh, God perpetrates an irony of two women as the first witnesses of his son's resurrection. Now, think about the story. Jesus, born in an obscure province that nobody had heard of. His genealogy uh, containing various females in his genealogy, like Rahab and others, who might be considered liabilities in any family. He worked as, as, a, as a, uh, a builder where nobody would have dreamed of looking for him. He goes to a cross. He is a poor rabbi. 
He goes to a place associated with God's curse, not God's approval. And now the last and greatest surprise is that God allows the first resurrection, the first witnesses of His resurrection to be women. And that's maybe not so much of a surprise in our day. And that day, that would have been unheard of. If anybody was going to fabricate, fabricate the story of the resurrection, would they have made the witnesses women in that day? Of course not. And God doesn't look at things that way, does He? And here is a supreme irony, the supreme humor, the supreme surprise here to us of Almighty God that when He does His greatest act since the creation of the world and raising His Son from the dead, He attests it, He gives witness to it through the lips of those whose society widely discounted. And that's amazing because that's how God works. He takes the things that the world calls foolish and He lifts them up as His wisdom. And this story demonstrates that those of whom society thinks the least are often those whom God sends with His message. There's another group of people who are not deemed worthy of witness in a court of law and they were shepherds. And you know the story of Jesus' first coming who He appeared to. So the story shows that, that, that God works and reveals uh, in His resurrection uh, His power to humble people. To humble people. You'll notice here as you read the resurrection story that there is a sense of selective measures here. Who God allows to uh, 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 see the resurrection. Uh, to, to see the proofs of the resurrection. This, this, this story also reveals God's power. God's power. A human body, just like yours and mine. Not any per- more perfect than yours and mine. With the same flaws that you and I have, except without sin. A human body is raised, Romans said, through the Holy Spirit's power. Jesus says, said, I have... Uh, No man takes my life. I have power to lay it again, and I have power to take it up again. This narrative, this story shows God's power. But it also shows, as I mentioned, that God is selective in who He reveals to. People whose hearts were open. People who were not people who were uh, rejecting the truth of the resurrection, but people who He had ministered to. They they were wondering if if Jesus was really alive, but Jesus comes to people who humble their hearts. So there's a dilemma here. The tomb is empty. What do you do with that? But there also is a meeting with, secondly, uh, the Deliverer. The Deliverer. Look in verse 9. They go and they follow the instructions of the angels. And it says, And as they went to tell His disciples, Behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail! And they came and held Him by the feet and worshipped Him. Jesus meets them. The Jesus who was in the tomb a few hours ago, dead, without life, Jesus meets them and He says, all hail, or the, the, the word in the original language is, is, is a word like grace. It's a word like rejoice. It's a word of, 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 of special invitation. It's kind of a common greeting, but it's a word where Jesus says, hello, rejoice, grace to you. Jesus who lips had no air 
fire going in and out, now speaks to them and says, Rejoice, grace. And it says in verse 9, And they came and held Him by the feet and worshipped Him. See, when they got a glimpse of the resurrected Jesus, they could do nothing else but worship Him. If you get a glimpse of Jesus as the resurrected King, a true heart can do nothing but fall down and worship Him. Because Jesus is the dividing line. Either Jesus is who He says He is, and the resurrection confirms that, or He is the biggest hoax and lie in history. They worship Him. Notice the words of Jesus, the grace of Jesus here. Verse 10, Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee and there they shall see me. You see, the announcers, the messengers of four, the angels, they said, go tell the other disciples. Jesus says, go tell my brothers. My brothers. Why could He call them His brothers? Because of verses like Romans 8, 13-15 that these are children of God. And in children, they are heirs with Christ and joint heirs with Christ. Jesus has bonded with them. He has connected with them. He has done what is necessary for the forgiveness of their sins to bring them into a living, a living relationship with Him as the resurrected Christ. And He says, Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee and there they shall see Me. Jesus loves His brethren so much that He delights to be with Him. He delights to show Himself to them. Jesus is the Deliverer. And this story picks up in verse 11 through 15 with the fake news. So, thirdly, you have the delusion. The delusion, the, 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 the fake news here. And the guards, the watch in verse 11, come into the city and they don't go and report unto their uh, squadron leaders. They don't go and report to the Roman government. They go and report to the chief priest and scribe. Perhaps they know the story's going to get out somehow. I mean, you don't just hide this empty tomb here. The story's going to get out. And they say, well, maybe at least we can meet with the Jewish priests because their interests are our interests here in, in, in preserving our hide here. And so they go meet with the, with the priest, the chief priest there, and they try to cook up a plan. What, what is our plan? And the only thing that they can think of that will uh, uh, perhaps uh, uh, spin the story is for them to say, well, remember all the precautions that we were going to make in chapter 27 and verse um, 64, guarding the place in, in case the disciples came? Let's say that really did happen. That's absurd if you think about it. Here was a group of Roman soldiers and the chief priests and the assembly of the elders, the Sanhedrin, in verse 12, had taken counsel. They gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. The only way they could be convinced to go with this ridiculous story is to be paid a large amount of money. Money, money talks to some people, doesn't it? 
They would rather tell a lie and walk away with a bunch of money than they would attest to the greatest miracle of the universe, the miracle that indicated that one day they would stand before this righteous judge who was resurrected and give an account of their life. But do you see the absurdity of this? Of this, Roman soldiers, a group of them were all sleeping and were not wakened by uh, disciples who moved a stone that was sealed of several tons and went into the tomb to seal the body. I mean, how silently can you do that, right? And not one of them was awakened. All of them were asleep. Of course, that wouldn't hold water. But then... Think about their accountability to the Roman government. If they failed in their tasks, the tasks for failing in your uh, failing as a soldier of the Roman government would be execution. Remember the Philippian jailer who worried that the prisoners got out of the jail and so he's ready to do what? Take his own life. Well, how much more are Roman soldiers who were assigned specifically by the government to guard this? But that's their story, and they were sticking to it because they were paid enough. So they failed in their task, but they could do nothing about it. And by the way, there were tomb robbers sometimes, but they normally would carry off wealth. How much wealth did Jesus have in that tomb? It was just him. It was just him. And if the disciples didn't protect Jesus while he was alive and allowed him to be killed on the cross... Then why would they take the brief? Why would they risk their lives to rob his tomb after death, right? Uh, how could they have rolled away that massive stone without waking the guards? Penalties were severe. Uh, uh, one might argue, perhaps, that someone took the body, but the guards were not actually there. But then, why would the ruling establishment of that day circulate this kind of a rumor, which Matthew says is, is false here? And the testimony of guards who slept through this theft would have been incredible. Story only makes sense if the guards were present, didn't protect the body, and the officials had to strike a deal to cover their embarrassment. And that's what Matthew says was reported among the Jews until this day. And by the way, if they had slept while the disciples took the body, how would they have known what was going on, right? There had been a guard, but it had not prevented the resurrection. It had not prevented the resurrection. There are other theories out there today, aren't there? There are other fake news stories about the resurrection. Some say, well, the women went to the wrong tomb. Well, the the tomb that they had the night before visited, right? Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And began preparations for the body, but had to leave because of the Sabbath. They went to the wrong tomb. Uh, Some say, well, they all had hallucinations. Do you know the Do you know the odds of people more than one person having the same hallucination? Um, Paul says uh, that he appeared to the twelve, he appeared to Peter, he appeared to five hundred at once. And Paul Paul says you can go check out these witnesses. Many of them are still alive. There's a few that are dead. Many of them are still alive. It's, that's ridiculous. Some say that uh, he, Jesus was in the tomb, and, and of course he he wasn't totally dead. But that's ridiculous. His heart was pierced. Nobody survives that. But also, if that coolness of the tomb revived him and he wasn't really dead, how would he get out of the several ton um, stone, etc., and make it past the guards, right? And there are all kinds of, of, of theories there. But if you examine 
the story of the Gospels, the resurrection, you will really need to come down to this. It is either absolutely true and it changes everything, or it is the greatest lie in history. Even atheist scholar Gerd Ludemann says the resurrection of Jesus is a central point of the Christian religion. Evidently, everything quite simply depends on the event of the resurrection of Jesus. He understood. It's the capstone of our faith. And if Jesus Christ did indeed rise from the dead, and Matthew puts out the evidence here for you, then you have to accept all that he said. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said? And Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, live like you want to live. Do what, you, what your flesh wants to do. Party hard. Live, eat, drink, be merry, he says. Because why else would we have a reason for living? But the resurrection is crucial for the Christian faith. You think about the, the difference between a caterpillar and a butterfly, right? There's things that are vastly different between a caterpillar and a butterfly, and there's some continuities. There's things that are the same, aren't there? And after going through uh, the, the resurrection, it was Jesus. He wasn't exactly the same as before. Yes, he was Jesus and recognizable as his physical features. But there was a new quality to his existence, wasn't there? But they were in no doubt when they saw him that it was him and that he was alive forevermore and death could never claim him again. His resurrection was irreversible. There is no going back. And that changes everything. And that flowed out into the lives of the disciples, the apostles, and they were united with Him, not only in His death for the forgiveness of sins, but in His life for living uh, holy. And it changed their characters and personality. James and John, those sons of thunder, those bombastic guys who kind of spouted off what they thought, became apostles of love. Simon Peter, the vacillating leader, becomes a rock and his witness, his fearless witness, the early church is built on. The eleven were not a frightened rabble group of people hiding in foxholes, but they came, became an apostolic task force. And some have said that the greatest miracle, if the resurrection was not true, the greatest miracle was the changed lives of these people who were basing all this on a lie. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is the heart of the good news. There would be no good news to proclaim had it not been that Jesus was crucified but is no longer in the tomb because He is risen. The Gospel is nothing other than the resurrection of the crucified Jesus. And on this hangs the truth of the kingdom of God and the supreme evidence for God's existence. Without the resurrection, there is no good news. But secondly, the resurrection is proof of His sonship. It is significant that both of... I'm just going to take my mic off here. That both the resurrection appearances that Matthew records leads to worship. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they fall at His feet and they worship Him. The disciples, later on in verse 17, when they see Him, they worship. And that has importance for Matthew's church. 
The proper response to Jesus is worship, but only because Jesus shares the nature of God, who alone is to be worshipped. Jesus is the Son of God. Romans 1 talks about Jesus as to His human nature. He was a descendant of David. But through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Thirdly, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the springboard for mission. The disciples, at the end of Matthew, they can go out and they can proclaim good news only because of the resurrection. Because the one who has been resurrected and will be ascended is the one who has been declared to say, all authority and all power is in me. And it is empowering for the mission of God to redeem people for His name. Because of the resurrection, how can they be silent? It is the most exalting, exhilarating news in the whole world. And it should be impossible for us who really believe the resurrection to refrain from the mission of the gospel. But fourthly, the resurrection of Jesus means that His power and His presence are available. The risen one comes to them and in verse 18 he claims all authority in the universe. He promises that he will be with them on their worldwide mission wherever they go. He says in verse 20, unto the end of the age... And disciples down through the centuries to today, as us as disciples, have rejoiced and still do in the constant presence of the mighty risen Christ, who is the ultimate controller of all circumstances. If He defeated death and sin, there's nothing that's going to be greater than that. That's the trump card, isn't it? And He is Lord over that and stands on that with His foot on the necks of those enemies. And He gives us the strength we need to say no to sin and yes to His service. And finally, the resurrection of Jesus is the key certainly to eternal life. Because we have a high priest who lives forever now. Who saves us to the uttermost, Hebrews says. Who is an eternal priest. It's the key to eternal life and the new community of the church. We've seen this um, truth at the end of chapter 27. But it it cannot be forgotten because it comes out in the implications of the resurrection. Jesus said in chapter 27, verse 53, that a new temple would be raised up. And talks of the new eternal life made possible for the saints by the resurrection. Whenever we gather on the Lord's Day on Sunday, we are bearing witness that Jesus is alive and we have received His spiritual blessings. When the followers of the Lord gathered that first Lord's Day, they thought He was still dead and they gathered pretty defeated, didn't they? We gather as people who are standing upon the resurrection. And the resurrection tells us that this world does matter to Jesus, doesn't it? That the brokenness, the injustices, the pain of this world can be addressed in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If Easter only means that Jesus was raised in a spiritual sense, in other words, that his body is in the tomb, but his spirit went on, then there's a limitation there. But if Jesus' physical body was raised from the dead, Christianity is good news for the whole world. Because it's more than just about warming hearts, isn't it? 
The good news of the resurrection means that in a world of brokenness and sin and violence and epidemics, God will not tolerate that forever. And He will bring it to an end and return the world to what He created it to be through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Karl Marx said Christianity ignores the problems of the material world. Freud said that Christianity is just wish fulfillment. Nietzsche said that Christianity was just for wits and take away the resurrection and they're right. But stand on the resurrection and they are false. Christianity stands on the resurrection and resurrection changes everything. Somebody quipped this. I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. I had the joy of, of uh, meeting uh, <clears throat> with a, uh, a widower um, frequently, and um, we somehow or other always get talking about the resurrection as his great hope. And every time we speak, at the end of our conversation, the delights of the new world, the new creation that the uh, the resurrection will make possible for us, that God will inaugurate. He always says this, I can't wait for the resurrection. And he's referring to when the brokenness of this world is all wrapped up, it's cast away, there's a new world, a new heavens and a new earth. Reunited with his Savior, reunited with his wife who knew the Lord, Because if we are presented with a knowledge of the resurrection, you either have to accept it and devote every fiber of your life to Christ, or you have to bury your head in the sand and reject Him and lose your own soul. There's no middle aisle here. There's no sitting on the fence. There's no neutral. If Jesus is raised from the dead, Jesus is Lord, and your life better express that. Because a life that really believes that Jesus is truly alive and we will return and give an account of our lives before Him understands there's no neutral. Jesus is either Lord of all or He's not Lord at all, right? Resurrection says and screams emphatically, Jesus is Lord. So I wonder this morning if you really believe that. That Jesus is the Savior who who provided forgiveness of sins and He has purchased you and bought you and because of His resurrection He has raised you to new life in Him. And your life now is to be, as the song says, an alleluia to Him. A sweet fragrance out of the price that He purchased you for on the cross. A life that lives new life. A life that is fresh in Christ. A life that is eager to surrender things to the Lord that I would have been much more eager to hold on to, but now I'm eager to let them go and allow Him to have His reign in my life because the payoff is eternal. If that describes you, you understand the resurrection. If that doesn't describe you, it means that you are choosing to Ignore the resurrection 
or you are not a believer in the first place. And so God's invitation to all people, because He is not willing that any should perish, is always this. Turn from your own way to Christ, repent, and believe the good news. The good news of the death of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus for a new life. After Paul would uh, frequently present the amazing good news of the gospel, he would always offer an invitation at the end for people to speak to him, for people to talk to him further about these things. And some did, many didn't. Some believed, some didn't. Some said, we'll think more about this, but I want you to understand that no matter where you are, there is no neutral. There is no neutral. Either you come to believe His truths, and you break down your objections to them, and you say by faith that what God says is true and declared of Jesus, or you say no to Jesus. You can't have it both ways. Believers, I wonder how your life is reflecting the resurrection of Jesus. Is your life a sweet savor, a fragrance, because of your service to Him, because of your love for Him, that flows to the nostrils of God who raised His Son from the dead? Are you living by power in the resurrection? Or are you living by your own strength? And you find you keep hitting walls and you keep running out of power. Because there is no power in the flesh. But in Jesus, because of His resurrection, there is continual streams of living water. Power. Or perhaps in speaking to someone who said, I know all these things in my head, my heart does not believe the resurrection. And you need to say to the Lord Jesus, it is true, you are right, you are Lord, and I am giving my life to you. I am receiving your life in exchange for mine. You laid your sin upon, you laid my sin upon you at the cross. You give me new life because of the resurrection. And today by faith, I am receiving that. Let's pray. If this morning that describes you, that you say today is the day that I am accepting the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the crux of the gospel for my sins, and I am by faith taking a new life in Christ, I'd like you to come and talk to me after the service. Because I want to share how this unpacks and how this is related to your personal walk with Jesus Christ. If there's anyone here this morning that uh, would declare that today is the day I'm coming to salvation, I would like you to speak with me right after the morning service. And we can give counsel, we can give instruction from the Word of God as to how Jesus' life and death and resurrection changes everything for you. And disciples, believers, followers of Jesus, transformed learners, are you allowing the resurrection to continually change you or are you getting stale? If the knowledge of the resurrection is true and it is real, then it is worth devoting every fiber of your life to Jesus and His purposes. He is Lord of all or He is not Lord at all.
and Matthew, Matthew's record here is that those who have a real encounter with Jesus truly worship at his feet. Let's pray. Lord, we thank and praise you for the wonderful gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Incarnated, made in the flesh, lived a pure and perfect, obedient life. Provided the sacrifice for sins, the payment that we could never pay. Gives a gift that we could never purchase. And is raised again, as the scriptures say, for our justification to be declared righteous in his eyes. Thank you that we can agree that we will never be suffering from anything that the resurrection can't fix if we're in you. And I pray as the knowledge of the resurrection has been presented this morning, your spirit would do the work in hearts through the ears and hearts that the speaker cannot do. And I pray that you would claim worshipers for your glory, for your renown, for your fame, through the power of God's word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.